0: Welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. Hey, everyone. You may have already heard the first part of this episode. I remastered and re-edited it, but I kept much of it the same. I then added two segments afterwards, so I hope you enjoy the fuller discussion of the trolley problem and its discontents. Just a warning, I usually try to make episodes family-friendly, but this episode involves a lot of violence and discussion of death, sort of out of necessity. So it's probably best to skip this one while little ones are listening. And who said philosophy wasn't exciting? To start off today's episode, we're going to try a little experiment. It's called a thought experiment. We use these in philosophy all the time. So here's a scenario.
1: The Trolley Driver You're driving a trolley through the hills just outside of the city. As you round a bend, you see up ahead five people working on the track. The track is in a steep valley now, and the sides of the trolley are hemmed in. The workers cannot escape. You have to stop the trolley to avoid killing them. But as you step on the brakes, you find they don't work. Luckily, you see up ahead between you and the workers a spur of track leading to the right. You can turn the trolley onto it and save the workers. But as you get closer to the junction, you realize that one worker is alone on the side track. He can't get off the track in time either. So by turning the trolley, you will kill him.
0: Thank you to our guest narrator, Christy Harrington. Okay, so imagine along with me that you found yourself at the helm of a train or a trolley. You round a bend in the hills and somehow the track maintenance team wasn't coordinating properly with traffic control, and they're doing repairs on a piece of track that you're about to run over. They can't escape because the sides of the canyon are too steep, your brakes don't work, and there are no other emergency measures. So this is a bad situation. Good news, though. There's a junction up ahead, and you can turn the trolley away from these workers, saving their lives and going home a hero. However, it looks like they're doing repairs on both tracks, and by turning the trolley, you'd be killing the one worker who's stuck on the sidetrack. Turn right, and you save five by killing one. Go straight and you save one by killing five. Lose, lose. Decisions, decisions. What do we do? So, in May of 1985, Judith Jarvis Thompson published an essay called The Trolley Problem, and in that essay, she credits fellow philosopher Philip Afoot for at least drawing attention to the problem, if not devising it herself, about 10 years earlier in 1978. Most people now credit Philip Afoot with coming up with the trolley problem. So the question before us is, is it morally permissible? Is it okay to turn the trolley onto the track with only one worker on it, thus sparing five lives? So I asked some of my friends to give their assessment. Most of them got that I had them stuck in a true dilemma where there are only two choices.
2: I get the impression that I don't have a whole lot of time to think about it, but I would still argue that no matter what, I'm still going to try and find a way to save that person.
3: Um, I mean, I'm trying to think about medicine. If I had medicine and I were to, you know, I could either save one person or I could save five.
4: I don't know. There's so many variables to that question. It's like... Is the one guy really important and whatever? And the other five, maybe they're just not as good. It's like, do you kill one person to preserve the herd?
0: One of my friends couldn't let go of the idea that he might be able to weasel his way out of making a hard choice.
5: You ask a very, very good question. Well, I would look around me on the trolley. I would realize that I'm the only one on the trolley, but the last person on the trolley left a bowling ball bag With a giant bowling ball in it And because we're on a trolley um, I think there's some kind of tracks or something And I would use the bowling ball I would throw it as hard as I can in front of the trolley And we would hit it and we'd derail um, And then we wouldn't kill anyone
0: You have like five seconds to make this decision
5: it's just, turn, and I can't turn do over. I can't do a really sharp turn and try and derail the whole trolley all together. All not. the
0: turning does is just change the tracks. You're just pushing a button to change.
5: Tracks. Are the workers inside of a pit? Is there a chance that we could just go over the top of their heads? No. Well, it depends. Because if if I like the one person more, then I would probably turn to the right. And, and if I like, I didn't like the one don't person that I
0: whether you like people. <laughs> You're just a trolley, and then there are strangers on the track.
5: Or are the strangers young or old? All of them are exactly 30 years old. Um, do some of them have kids? All of them have kids. Well, you Terrible scenario. It's a terrible scenario. Does um, the trolley go in reverse? Five seconds. Five. Four. Oh, oh, I would, I would turn and then I would adopt the kid that, that has just lost whatever individual was hit by the trolley. And I'd tell him that a, a giant eagle swooped in and attacked, and, and that's what happened. It'll be a heroic story. So you would kill
0: him and then you would lie about his death to his child.
5: Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. That's, that's a good <laughs> Okay. Well, I would I would probably not lie. Are there any animals? Is there a chance if I were to throw if there were to throw some kind of food in front that the animals might come jump in front and they would have to sacrifice themselves, but it'd be for a noble cause. You have five seconds. Uh that's a really difficult question because it's a lose lose.
0: Yeah, that's the point. This whole interview is going to be a series of lose-lose scenarios.
1: Can I push the big guy into the train and derail it from the tracks, not causing harm to him or anyone inside the trolley?
0: You're pretty far up, let's say. Can can I find
1: an option C? Everyone
0: looks for option C. (laughs) Now, did publishing this paper heal the world of any of its many ills? No. No. Did it influence world leaders to behave differently in relation to one another? Probably not. Did it inspire a hilarious episode of NBC's The Good Place? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not the point, or at least not the only point, of doing philosophy. This puzzle helps us to do two things. First, it helps us understand the way we as species in fact reason about morality and about ethical dilemmas, that is, understand our moral psychology more clearly, And second, it helps us clarify our ethical theories, our best attempts at saying how we ought to decide whether an action is right or wrong, permissible or impermissible, or required or merely praiseworthy. It helps us understand the nature of morality more clearly. This puzzle has been discussed many times on podcasts like Radiolab and Philosophy Bites and Philosophy Talk, to name a few. It's also been on TV shows, as I just mentioned on NBC's The Good Place, And recently in countless media outlets, wondering about how we should program autonomous vehicles. Because in rare circumstances, a self-driving car may have to make a split-second decision between driving off a cliff or into a concrete meridian and hitting a crosswalk full of people. You might have thought that philosophy doesn't do anything practical, but deciding how self-driving cars should be programmed is about as practical as it gets. But I digress. The reason I want to take a second to discuss it today is twofold. First, this is about as clear a case as they come of what the process of doing philosophy looks like in real life. And B, there are many layers I want to explore about the trolley problem that haven't been touched on in a lot of public media. Okay, so back to the original puzzle. Is it okay, or perhaps even morally required, to turn the trolley, thus killing only one person instead of five? So what do you all think?
1: think i have to i think i have to take the one the one death over the five
2: um i'll take out the one guy i'll leave those other guys i don't know them, but i'll make the hard decision
1: clear vulcan logic
4: right
2: oh i think that's that instinctually i don't think you even think about that um if if you don't have a choice there's no way i can avoid it i'm gonna do the least amount of damage and i'm gonna i'm gonna turn it to the one
4: i don't know I guess since this is a lose-lose situation, I'll just go for the one guy. Why not?
3: Um, I, as of right now, I believe that I would turn and kill the one and save the five. Most
0: people seem to agree that we should turn the trolley, and at a minimum that we're allowed to turn the trolley. Thompson writes, But everyone says that it is true, at a minimum, that you may turn it, that it would not be morally wrong in you to do so. Okay, so she thinks it's okay for you to turn the trolley. She doesn't yet take a stand on whether you must turn the trolley, but at minimum she thinks it's morally permitted. Morality allows us to turn the trolley. Now here's where the philosophy starts. What is the rule that you used to decide it was okay to turn the trolley? In other words, was there an abstract principle which led you to make the decision you did in the trolley problem? Simply put, why did you make the decision you did?
1: Well, I'm picturing the families of all those people, and I'm picturing the family of the one person, and I'm considering the impact that it would have. So, yeah. I, that's my that's my reasoning.
2: I want to I want to minimize the damage. I, it, it, this is horrible. This shouldn't have happened, and you don't have time to rationalize that you're going to in that, in that case, it's just like when you're driving a car, you're going to do, and you realize you're going to hit something. You're going to minimize the damage as much as possible. And uh, you're going to, without even thinking about it, you're going to, there's less people over there.
4: Since they're all just equal people and there's, there's nothing more special to this scenario. It's just, uh, it's kind of, you know, preserving the herd over one guy type scenario, I guess.
5: Because it would leave only one kid without uh, a, a parent versus the other five. Sacrifice one person
4: for the sake of the many.
3: You know, I could either save one person or I could save five. Then saving the five would be better than saving the one. Or saving four more people than otherwise would have been for this one guy for me is morally virtuous or morally good.
0: The fairly clear consensus here is something like, we should save five lives if doing so only costs one life. Here's a second case, again featured in that episode of NBC's The Good Place.
1: The surgeon. You're a surgeon with five transplant patients who will certainly die soon if they don't get their transplants, and they're all low on the transplant list. There's another patient in to get her wisdom teeth removed, but she's otherwise totally healthy. You check and find that she's a perfect match for all five patients. So you could remove her vital organs and save the lives of five people while sacrificing just one life.
0: So you're the surgeon and you're in charge of deciding what happens here. One healthy person, five unhealthy people in desperate need of organ transplants.
1: I
2: don't think I like where you're going with this scenario. (laughs) You're not supposed to. You're
1: a bad person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Who lives and who dies? No. Okay, so you wouldn't kill her? No.
1: No, I don't think that you can arbitrarily make a decision to to take the one person's life in that case.
2: Yeah, no. That ain't gonna happen. That's just not gonna happen.
4: I would would still... I, I wouldn't kill the one girl.
2: Would I take the healthy person's organs? And they were in for some other surgery. No, I wouldn't.
3: I would not kill her. And I would allow, I would take her wisdom teeth out and I would allow the other five to die.
0: Okay, okay. So it seems like you can't cut up a healthy person to save five patients. No. Fair enough. Here's a different case. Let's see if we get basically the same result.
1: The bridge. Again, the trolley is barreling toward five workers who can't escape. But instead of driving the trolley, you are on a bridge over the track. Now, you aren't massive enough to stop the trolley by yourself just by jumping in front of it, so that's not an option. But you look over, and you see a person dangling their legs off the side of the bridge. They are a hulk of a person. Just massive. In fact they're big enough to stop the trolley if they were to fall onto the track.
0: So this case is a lot like the original trolley example, in that we still got a trolley or a train headed straight for five workers. But this time we don't have a sidetrack. Instead, we have the option of pushing someone off of a bridge and halting the trolley using their bulk as a dead weight. Again, we'd be saving five lives by killing one person, but the bridge case feels more like the surgeon case in terms of what we should do than like the original trolley driver. What does everyone think about this case?
1: Oh, man.
0: So, what do you think? Should you push this person off the bridge?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think that I can arbitrarily decide to push the guy off the, the bridge. He's just sitting there.
5: Well, I'm, I'm not ever going to push someone in front of a trolley. Okay. I'd probably push them off the bridge. You and push, push them off? Into the water so they would be safe.
2: <laughs> no. No. I I can't. That's actively killing someone. It's much different to sacrifice my own life than to force someone to sacrifice theirs. To make a mental or a, a moral choice that 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 person's next to me life is less important than those other five. I can't do that. I I, I can't. That's killing.
3: Um, I would not because that would feel like murder.
1: I think the moral of the story is don't push people off, dis- off bridges and don't give me decisions like this.
0: Why not? What gives? It seems like we were ready to end one life in order to save five in the trolley case, but we weren't ready to do it in the surgeon case or in the bridge case. What's the difference?
1: I think because, because a decision's already been made, in my own opinion, um... Through my faith, I would say that the decision has been made that these five are going to die. Mm. Um, Whereas the trolley case, I feel like maybe I'm on the wrong track. Mm -hmm. Maybe this was something that I caused by being there in the first place.
2: When I'm on the trolley, like, I'm part of the object that's going to kill them. uh, And I have control over it. Um,
1: Right. I feel like in the trolley case, I would be responsible for doing the killing. Whereas in the case of of the people whose organs were failing that wasn't my my cause. I didn't I didn't cause this to happen.
2: Cuz you're placing a, a value judgment of uh well, a it, she's healthy. She's 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 alive. That in, for me to do that, I have to kill her, which is just not something I'm going to do.
5: There is a little bit more of a inhuman act in pushing someone in front of uh or it in in From directly causing someone harm than there is in in merely changing the course of events to have less casualties
4: there could there could be a moment of like well, you know the greater good, but that's not why I decided that's not what I'm here to do
3: and i I partially think that part of the hazard of working on the train is that or working on a track like I imagine that they understand that there's an element of risk
2: right exactly it's not i'm 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 choosing. and you can argue it both times I'm choosing to value life that's the choice I'm choosing not to kill I value life and um, I value life by not pushing or by value life by you could say I'm choosing to kill one by controlling it but I would say I'm choosing to kill a minimum
3: different for me is that this pedestrian had no agreement he had no understanding about what's going on he's like a pawn and I'm the and I'm the chess master, the only thing that I have is I have to treat this guy as that as though I would want to be treated, and I would not want to be pushed over against my will to be killed by a trolley to save people that I don't know and removing somebody's organs when uh they are unaware of that, so you're again you're murdering them, even though you have a white lab coat on
0: So it seems like at this point in the analysis, we can say that we're ready to make decisions according to the following principles.
1: Killing one is worse than letting five die.
0: Which gives us the right result in the surgeon and bridge cases, where we said it'd be better to let five people die from organ failure than to actively kill one person. And the second principle is...
1: Killing five is worse than killing one.
0: Which leads us to make the right decision in the trolley driver case, in which we're driving over five people and thus killing them, or driving over one person and killing them instead. We're killing someone either way. There's no letting die in this case. So it seems. And this is exactly what Philippa Foot does in her original paper. She argues that the surgeon case is a case where we face the choice of killing one versus letting five die. Alternatively, the original trolley case is a case of killing one instead of killing five. So do you think there's a difference between killing and merely letting die?
3: I, I do personally. yeah absolutely
2: yeah there there's a difference I think the difference might be there's something about like me being the instrument of someone's death versus me being a guiding hand towards someone's death where the trolley cave, the trolley is killing the person. there's like there's that little buffer like that's the emotional barrier that makes it makes me capable of that. But, uh, people accuse me of being a robot sometimes, but I've got enough emotion there that I, I don't think I could push someone.
3: Well, that's the thing in law is when they're trying to figure out, um, you know, duty, like, uh, or who's responsible for what they'll say, but not for blank happening, this would not have happened. And so, but not for me grabbing a gun or drinking and driving or doing something, Tom would still be alive. Uh, and then on the other hand, which is, but not for, you know, uh, someone else driving, they would still be alive. I could have been there, I could have not been there, but ultimately the person still would have been run over without me. Yeah, uh, morally, especially as a future pastor, if someone were to come to me and say, this is, you know, say I'm a Catholic priest, uh, and they came to me and said, hey, I've. I've committed murder, and I said, oh my gosh, what happened? And they said, oh my, I was walking on the sidewalk, and someone got ran over right next to me. You know, I'd be like, well, that's not murder. Let's pause
0: and think through what we've done so far. The trolley problem is supposed to be a case where we are either killing one by driving them over with the trolley, or killing five by driving over them with the trolley. Foot thinks that both options are cases of killing rather than letting die. Foote also thinks that the surgeon case is one where we are faced with either killing a healthy patient or not intervening to save some patients who would die on their own. You can hopefully see the intuition here. We'd be letting the five unhealthy patients die, whereas we'd be killing the healthy patient if we took her organs. So far... Foot has solved the problem. Originally, it seemed like the surgeon case and the trolley case had to be given the same analysis, and so we had to do the same thing in both cases. But we don't want to do the same thing in both cases. We want to keep the healthy patient alive. We don't want to be killing them and harvesting their organs. But we still want to turn the trolley and kill the one worker on the sidetrack to save the five. So, Foot has given us a way out of this problem, by giving a more sophisticated analysis of the two cases, one involving a distinction between killing and letting die. So, we can rest easy, right? Maybe go to the beach, relax, confident that our moral principles are consistent. Not so fast. Here's where Thompson comes in. She throws a proverbial wrench in our spokes. By changing the trolley case slightly, so that instead of driving the trolley, in which case it felt like we'd be killing someone either way, we'd instead be standing on the sidelines and intervening in the situation from the outside.
1: The bystander. You're hiking through the hills and come upon the train tracks to see a runaway trolley headed for the junction nearby. Beyond the junction are five workers who will die if you do nothing. Nearby, though, there's a lever that will switch the tracks at the junction, thus turning the trolley away from the five workers onto a side track. Again, though, you see that there's one person on the side track that will die if you intervene. If you choose to intervene, one worker dies. If you choose not to, though, five people will meet a violent end.
0: How does this reintroduce the original problem? According to Thompson in Bystander at the Switch, we do nothing and so can't be harming anyone. And so can't be harming anyone if we fail to intervene or simply choose not to. We at least have the option of keeping our hands clean, morally speaking at least. Ew. So does that seem right? Does it seem like you're not killing the people if you don't intervene? Yeah, I guess there's there's something
2: different about that scenario. Um...
1: I think it should feel like that. But in the case of being a bystander, I think I'd flip the switch. Mm-hmm. I I think, once again, I'm picturing those families of the five versus the families of the
4: one. Again, I guess I would just sacrifice one for the needs of the many.
2: I don't see much difference between whether I'm on the train or whether I'm not. I'm still making the decision which track it goes. So I would rather kill and minimize one than five. But whether I'm on the train or on the side of the train, I still have that same choice. Ultimately, I'm going to make the same one. Although I think by being off it, I think I have more more options available.:
3: So my initial reaction that I'm thinking would be the right thing to do right now is to run over as fast as I could, uh, and then to pull the junk you know pull the lever, have it switch over to the side rail, and then have it be to the one to the one person. As Thompson puts it,:
1: If the bystander does not throw the switch, he drives no trolley into anybody, and he kills nobody.
0: If the bystander does not throw the switch, he drives no trolley into anybody. And he kills nobody. When you're the driver, though, things are a little different. It seems like you're doing the harm either way. You're really stuck. So our original principle,
1: Killing one is worse than letting five die,
0: which gave us the right outcome in the surgeon case, now fails us, since by throwing the switch as a bystander, we're intervening and killing one. But if we don't throw the switch, we're only letting five die. According to our principle,
1: Killing one is worse than letting five die.
0: We as the bystander cannot throw the switch. We as the bystander cannot throw the switch. It is morally forbidden. But this is counterintuitive. It seems like at the very least we're allowed to throw the switch to kill one worker and save five, right? It seems like at the very least we're allowed to throw the switch to kill one worker and save five, right? Right? So does it seem right to say that you're at least allowed to throw the switch, that morality doesn't prohibit it?
3: Is it permissible? I would say yes. Yes, it is permissible. So if, if I met someone in real life that told me that that happened to them, I would say not only is that permissible, in, in some ways that might even be uh, laudatory.
1: I don't. I don't think I'm morally required to flip the switch, but I think that if there's a possibility to take an action... And to do good, I, th- I think that I am morally required to do good.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. And, um... Or
1: do better. <laughs> do, yeah. do less bad. Do less
0: bad. <laughs> it might not be right to say that we must throw the switch, but it seems at least right to say that morality doesn't forbid it, right? But it seems at least right to say that morality doesn't forbid it, right? Darn. we were moments away from the beach... And now we're back to the drawing board. During this first break, I wanted to ask for your help. There are three things you can do to help support Reductio. First, you can rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, and so on. I've included a couple links in the show notes. Second, you can support us financially at patreon.com/reductio. Thanks again to our ongoing supporters. Your support means the world to me personally and to others involved with Inverted Spectrum Media. Third, and perhaps most importantly, spread the word. Post our links on social media, recommend us to friends. Post our links on blogs and groups you're part of. Word of mouth is like 90% of how podcasts spread. Thank you all in advance for your help. Welcome back to Reductio. Before the break, we had reached an impasse. We originally wanted to come up with some rules or principles that we could use to decide how to act in these kinds of life or death situations. And we were doing good through the trolley driver and then the surgeon and bridge cases. We decided that killing is worse than letting die and that killing one is better than killing five. Then came Thompson's bystander at the switch, which made it so our principles could no longer consistently guide us through all of the scenarios we're facing. Bummer. The trolley problem goes through many iterations. What if the track is curved back in a loop, but the one person on the track is large enough to stop the trolley and save the five, but the five are smaller and so would all have to die to save the one larger person? Does that make a difference? What if we drifted across multiple tracks so that we kill everyone? Multi track drifting! What if it was your fault that the workers were on the track, like you're their supervisor? What if in the surgeon case you were the cause of the five patients' terminal illnesses? What if you intentionally caused their terminal illnesses, and so the transplant was like rectifying a wrong that you had done? What if it's your family on the track, but Mother Teresa on the other one? What if it's a group of corrupt lawyers on one track, but an innocent little girl on the other track? How does it change the scenario if you're just a passenger on the runaway trolley and the driver of the trolley is frozen with fear and needs you to step in and make a decision? What if you're just a passenger on the trolley not specifically charged with driving the trolley? These are all strange cases to think about. There's actually now a trolley problem board game where you stack people on either side and someone has to choose which side to turn the trolley onto. So you can change the trolley question in many ways. What if it's a baby on one side and a retiree on the other? But what if it's baby Hitler? And what if baby... What if it's baby Hitler who's going to be raised in a loving, supportive family? What if the retiree is a famous chemist who will cure cancer in her spare time in the next year? What if she was a madwoman who vivisected live animals without anesthesia as part of her research? I'm just making stuff up here, but you get the idea. It seems like a wild game. You can also find countless variations of the trolley problem in memes on the internet, and a simple image search will reveal lots of them. A lot of funny crossover between philosophical theories, some funny television and movie references, some great paradoxical versions. Most of them are based on Bystander at the Switch, where you're standing at the side of the track and have the option to switch the tracks and therefore turn the trolley. My personal favorite is an anti-trolley problem meme where the caption is simply, nobody is in danger, the trolley is traveling safely towards its destination. Anyways, as I understand it, this is the complete trolley problem. We can't create consistent rules to guide us through all the cases, but we want consistent rules to guide us through all the cases. We're stuck and there isn't a clear way out. Is morality irrational? Is it simply silly to expect consistent rules to guide us? Or maybe this just isn't how we should think about rationality. I want to spend the second part of the episode thinking about two different ways to undermine the problem in the first place. So we won't be positing a new solution to the problem or a new set of principles that will guide us through each case consistently, Instead, we'll be looking at two assumptions that we have to make to accept that there's a problem here in the first place. The first assumption I want to explore is that we can actually count up lives as if they were countable entities like potatoes. One potato is less valuable than three potatoes, yes? Is one life less valuable than three lives? Don't be so sure. This philosopher John Tarek thinks that we can't add lives together. We can't aggregate them into a group and then make judgments that the larger group is worth more than the smaller group. I mean, of course, we can do that, but we'll be wrong. If you're driving a boat around a Pacific island, say, and you find out that the volcano under the island is set to erupt, then you're going to want to save some people on the island and then hightail it out of there. Let's say your boat will only carry 10 more people. Let's say your boat will only carry 10 more people. Let's also say that on one side of the island are 10 people. On the other side, an equal distance from your current position, there are 5 people. So it's a simple choice of saving 5 versus saving 10. Seems reasonable to try to save more people, right? Tarek thinks no. You can't add lives together. And so when you're saving the 10 people, that means there are more... That means there are people who might die on the other side of the island the number of people involved shouldn't count. I think this is really interesting. It's a great case of philosophy at its best. It's taking something that everyone thinks is obvious and shows that it's not really all that obvious. In this case, take the claim that numbers count in ethical reasoning and show that it's not obvious that numbers should count in ethical reasoning. Think about it this way. From the perspective of each person involved, it doesn't so much matter whether you're one of five people being saved or one of ten. At the end of the day, you get saved. You care about your life in a special sort of way, in a way that no one else can care about your life. It's your life, and so you're invested in it continuing, and that's different from you caring in general that as many people get saved as possible. If we repeat this for everyone on the island, we'll find that every individual person wants to keep on living. None of them will be truly comforted by the fact that you are saving more people. What will matter to them, most centrally, is that you're not saving them. It's not a lesser evil for me to die than for others to die. From my own egoistic, selfish perspective, the greatest evil is for me to die. Okay, so here's how Tarek argues for the point. Let's start with the following case.
1: The antidote. You are in possession of the only dose of an antidote for a rare poison. As it turns out, you and another person, a stranger let's say, have been given the poison. Each of you will die soon if you don't take the full antidote. The choice is yours, though, because you have the antidote.
0: It seems like in this case you're allowed to take the antidote yourself. It might be super-duper cool and praiseworthy of you if you sacrificed your life for this other stranger, but morality can't require that you do so. After all, let's assume it makes little difference to the world at large which one of you survives. You might as well flip a coin or just take the drug for yourself. All things being equal, most people would think it's okay for you to act in your own self-interest. Now let's move on to the second case.
1: The drug. You have a supply of some life-saving drug. Six people will all certainly die if they're not treated with the drug. But one of the six requires all of the drug if he is to survive. So you could save him and only him by giving him all of the drug. Each of the other five requires only one-fifth of the drug. So you could distribute the drug evenly between them and save the five.
0: Okay, so the only things that have changed here is that now you have to decide who gets the drug, but you don't need it. You're a third party. Additionally, we're now back in familiar one-life-versus-five-lives territory. Now we're all going to want to say that morality requires that you give the drug to the five instead of the one, that five lives outweigh one life. John Tarek says nay to this intuition. How could he think this? It seems crazy to think that you're even allowed to give the drug to one person instead of to the five. Let's change the scenario a bit to keep following along Tarek's argument.
1: The friend. The situation is the same as in the drug case, except the one person who requires the whole dose of drug is your lifelong friend David.
0: Okay, so we've introduced a new wrinkle. Now it involves your friend. Tarek thinks in this scenario it's okay to save your one friend rather than the five strangers. Many people think this is flat wrong. Morality doesn't care about your feelings for David. It cares about saving more lives rather than fewer, dang it. Tarek argues against this thought, though. You're allowed to save your friend simply because he's your friend. So let's build up to that conclusion. A different case, just to get an intuition on the table. If your friend David is in need of a life-saving drug, and you have control of the drug, you should give it to him, yes? Of course, you should save your friend if his life needs saving, and you can save him. Now what about if both David and another person are in need of the drug, and you alone must decide who gets the drug? Surely you're allowed to save David, yes? Your special relationship with David makes it perfectly moral to save him and not the other person. There's no perfect choice here, but it's at least okay for you to save David. It's similar to the antidote case, except that you're a third party instead of one of the patients. Again, it seems like all things being equal, you're allowed to serve your own interests, including saving your friend David. Okay, now here's a case that's supposed to be fairly analogous to the friend case where you have the drug.
1: David. What if David himself was the one in possession of the drug? He still needs a full dose, and there are still five others who need partial doses. How might you persuade him to give the drug to the five who need it?
0: David is allowed to save himself. If you disagree, you'll need to come up with a moral argument that might convince him. Could you convince David that he must give the other five the drug? Is it worse for five to die rather than for one to die? Here's what Tarek thinks your friend David will say. Worse for whom? It's a far worse thing for me that I should die than that they should. I allow that for each of them... It would be a worse thing were they all to die while I continue to live than it would be were I to die and they continue to live. Indeed, I wouldn't ask nor would I expect any one of them to give up his life so that I, a perfect stranger, might continue to live mine. But why should you or any one of them expect me to give up my life so that each of them might continue to live his We can't try to convince David that his life is worth less than five others by some kind of utilitarian reasoning like our lives in aggregate will have more happiness than your one life or will have a greater positive effect in our five lifetimes than you will in your one lifetime. Tarek thinks there's no argument that will convince David that his life is truly worth less than the five other lives. There's no legitimate claim on the drug. The five have no right to the drug, so David wrongs no one in deciding to take the drug himself. So here's the final move. If it's okay for David to take the drug himself, then surely it should be okay for me to give the drug to David, him being my friend and all. Even if there are five other lives at stake, it's okay for me to give the drug to David. If I have five people on one side, and one on the other, and now we remove the idea that one of them is my friend, what if I want to ensure that each individual person has the same probability of surviving? I can give all of the drug to person A, or one fifth of the drug to each of persons B, C, D, E, and F. In order to ensure an equal probability that each individual survives, I must flip a coin. Heads, I save person A, Tails, I save B through F. Then each individual person will have a 50% probability of surviving. This would be fair. Tarek's overall argument rests on this idea that the only talk of good and bad that matter is good and bad from someone's perspective, from each individual's perspective, it's bad to die and good to live. And that's true regardless of whether I'm part of a group of ten who will be saved or part of a group of five, or I am alone to be saved. It matters to me that I live and that I not die. We can't add together my perspective with someone else's to make a super perspective. The only question of good and bad is a question asked from a particular person's perspective. Now, I haven't really done Tarek's argument justice here. I'll link to it in the show notes, though I'm, I'm not sure how many will have access to it because of the uh, publisher's restrictions. But if you find the argument interesting, I recommend getting your hands on the full article and reading it. It's very clearly written and very easy to understand. Anyways, we can debate whether Tarek is correct. You might be unconvinced, after all his claim is that if you are driving the boat and must choose between saving 5 and saving 10 that you should just flip a coin. You should even flip a coin if it's one person on one side of the island versus 200 on the other side of the island. That might seem like an implausible claim. Either way though, what we've got what we've got here either way though what we've got here is a way out of the trolley problem. Deny that there's any sense at all to the question being asked. In the cases of the trolley driver, the bridge, the surgeon, the bystander, the switch, we are asked whom it would be better to save and whom it would be better to kill or let die. On one interpretation, Tarek is saying, Bah! These questions are based on a mistaken understanding of morality. Let's take a quick break and then we'll bring in a guest to help us understand another way of avoiding the trolley problem altogether. I want to take this break to highlight a podcast you might enjoy. If you're enjoying philosophy and want more in-depth conversations about philosophy, you might enjoy a podcast called Elucidations. It was started by the grad students at the University of Chicago. Its format is simple interviews, and so it's built more for those who are quite interested in the subtleties of philosophical arguments. But it's pretty well done, and it's a great way to absorb some more philosophy. So check it out. So remember how I said that there are two assumptions that we have to accept in order to get stuck in the trolley problem to begin with. The second assumption, the one I want to discuss right now, is what I regard as the problematic idea of what it means to be morally consistent or morally rational. I actually did a short episode or monad about consistency. You should go check it out. Simply put, this is an assumption about what morality is for that morality or ethics provides us with general rules or principles which can guide us in particular circumstances towards the morally righteous action. Morality is about finding the right rules. The trolley problem gets us in a bind because we can't find general rules that apply to these different cases. This seems to be bad, but this rests on the assumption that we need general rules that apply to all the different cases. Let's talk with Jordan Wallace-Wolf, a J.D. Ph.D. student at UCLA, about moral particularism, a view that denies this very assumption.
6: So I am Jordan Wallace-Wolf. I'm a uh, Ph.D. candidate here at the University of Los Angeles. I've been in the program for about seven years now because I also got my law degree here at the University of Los Angeles uh, as well. So I work um, almost exclusively in uh, ethics and action theory. So I study um, the reasons we have to do things and what it amounts to that we do them rather than that they happen to us or something like that.
0: Cool. Can you give us like a, a quick example there?
6: I mean, a classic example is like a sickness. A sickness is a change in your body, but it's something that befalls you. It happens to you. Um, whereas if you walk down the street, this is something that you do. Um, and the fact that you do it means that all sorts of other things come into play. Like you can be asked why you're doing it, or you can be blamed if you do it badly.
0: Perfect. Welcome to Reductio for the first of probably many times. Jordan is on the board of Inverted Spectrum Media and will reappear from time to time on the show. So there's a moral theory that may at least appear to offer a way out of the difficulties presented in the trolley problem, and that theory is called moral particularism. Moral particularism, or just particularism for short, has been championed most strongly by a philosopher named Jonathan Dancy, who's currently a professor at the University of Texas. So Jordan is here to introduce the idea to us and walk us through the basics. So Jordan, what's the general idea here?
6: So um, according to Jonathan Dancy, many philosophers accept implicitly and without too much scrutiny a generalist view of morality is his label. Dancy rejects this implicit idea, and he arrives at a position that he calls, by contrast, particularism. The generalist and the particularist are arguing about the role that principles play in morality. The particularist thinks that, to give a quote from Dancy, Quote, the possibility of moral thought and judgment does not depend on the provision of a suitable supply of moral principles.
0: So a moral principle is something like a general rule or something
6: like that? Yeah, a principle is something that's meant to apply or cover more than just a specific case. So a rule about um you know driving covers driving whether you're on a road in Alabama or in Massachusetts. It's general across those those instances.
0: Dancy doesn't believe in general moral principles. But to put it a slightly more precise way, he doesn't believe that morality or moral reasoning relies on general principles or rules that cover lots of cases. He instead thinks that moral reasoning is about particular cases and all of their complex particularities. Dancy went on Craig Ferguson at one point. Turns out he's Claire Dane's father-in-law. Here's a little clip from that appearance.
7: All right, so you you. A, a moral particularism. Is that right? I'm a moral particularist. Oh, right. Now, yes. for those uh, for, the, for the one <laughs> or two hobos in the audience that don't understand, they, imagine, imagine I didn't understand what a moral particularist was and I had mm-hmm. the IQ of a ten-year-old seal. Then I have no hope. Right. Well, right. I, but sort of moving up a bit, Right. Um, you want me to tell you what this is? If you could, in, okay. in a layman's term. The normal idea about morality is that there are moral principles that somehow determine what is right and wrong to do.
2: Right, from religious standpoints no, or legal no, standpoints? No, 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 or
7: no, moral principles. Principles such as it's wrong to lie, it's, it's right to take care of others. These sorts of basic principles that most people are taught to live their lives by. By society or religion or yeah. law? Or by their parents, normally. Or their parents, right. Yeah. I would consider I mean, that society, wouldn't you? Um, it's a rather small society. All right, then. <laughs> uh, <coughs> So, the idea is there must be these moral principles, and that's what makes it possible for there to be a distinction between right and wrong actions. Right. If there were no principles, there'd be no difference between right and wrong. Right. But I think the difference between right and wrong needs no help from principles at all. So, particularism is the view that the distinction between right and wrong actions in no way depends upon there being any moral principles. The link between moral principles and being moral or being a good agent, being a morally good person, is a mistake.
0: So if I'm coming into this from the outside and I'm trying to decide, well, should I be a generalist or a particularist, what tools do we have available to us to try to decide which is the right view?
6: One, one interesting aspect of his argument pertains to what he calls the holism of reasons. He thinks that reasons in general um, concerning what to believe and what to do, even in non-moral contexts, but also in moral contexts, are holistic Um, And he argues that given this wider holism of reasons, when we look across all the types of reasons that there are to believe things and to do things, it would be puzzlingly exceptional or anomalous um, for moral reasons not to function in this holistic way. And if morality does function that way, then the argument continues, there cannot be general principles of the kind we're used to. So, you know, the bottom line is it's kind of an argument from holism.
0: So Dancy has the task of arguing that we should all be particularists about morality. We should all accept that morality is about particular cases rather than general moral principles. Dancy's main argument here concerns what we might call the holism of reasons. Let's figure out what that is in a second here, but first we've got to make something clear. If reasons are holistic, then there can't be general moral principles that are true of lots of different situations. So if morality is holistic, then there can't be general moral principles, like
1: Killing one is worse than letting five die. Or Killing five is worse than killing one.
0: Holism is incompatible with moral principles or general rules. So what is holism? What is the claim that reasons are holistic?
6: So, holism is the idea, in general, it's the idea that the significance or contribution of one part to a whole is dependent on the whole of which it is a part. So, that's pretty abstract, but but here's an example that I have. Take Legos. Legos, I don't think, are holistic because an individual piece has the same shape no matter what it's attached to. So, if you have a block... It's always a block, whether it's sitting in the wall of a castle or a side of a spaceship. But as a contrast, take an atom like an oxygen atom. Oxygen atoms change their shape depending on what they are bonding with. And thus the contribution or the effect of oxygen to the shape of a molecule, like water for example, can't be laid out in advance like a brick that doesn't stay the same. It only takes on its shape when it interacts with the wider hole that's a part of. So the oxygen atom gets part of its shape in a water molecule because there are two other hydrogen atoms arrayed in the way that we all see the Mickey Mouse shape. So
0: like in the world of biology, you also see lots of holism. Like the heart is only there because the lungs are also. They're feeding it oxygen. But then the lungs are only there because of the heart. the The heart pumps blood into them. That lungs can oxygenate and then support the brain, and then the brain supports the lungs and the heart. And so everything is sort of the way it is in the body because of the way it interacts with lots of other things.
6: Yeah, there's definitely the idea of um, the what something is or how it works. Um, you you can't hide from the whole that it's a part of to really explain its purpose and what it does
0: so I can't just take it on its own apart from its relation to anything else and treat it as sort of an independent thing
6: yeah I mean it's with the heart it's kind of a good example in the sense that the heart there's no you know outside of really bizarre circumstances there's no hearts just standing in space um, th- as you said, they need instruction from the brain and they need oxygen from the lungs. They live in a system, and when it's a part of that system, it fulfills you know, that role within the system.
0: Good. Okay, so let's go back to thinking about reasoning, and let's start with an example that's just general reasoning. So for now, we'll just set morality aside, and we'll just think in terms of just general reasoning. What's an example of how holism would affect the way we think about reasoning?
6: So Dancy has a good, I think, accessible example that's not about morality. So here's the example. If something appears red to you, that may be some reason to think that the object is red. In fact, that's a normal inference we make. If if things are not too weird, if it's not dark, if we're not hallucinating, we think that if I look at something and it looks red, that's a good reason to think it is red. Okay, good. So I'm
0: looking at this object. It looks red. So it's really natural to think it is red. Good.
6: Simple enough. But the same fact, the exact same fact that we just saw that the object appears red, it might not be a reason to believe the object is red if we describe the situation in more detail. So, for example, um, if you imagine you just took a pill that flips the way colors look, it's a hallucinogenic, it's a very precise hallucinogenic uh, that flips the way colors look. So if you knew that fact, then the fact that the object looks red is no longer a good reason to believe that it is red.
0: That same reason from earlier that this object looks red won't be a reason to think that the object is red in reality if I also know that I've been drugged. A different set of beliefs, like the belief that I've been drugged, for instance, will change whether a thing's appearing to me to be red is a reason for thinking that thing is in fact red.
6: In fact, it's a good reason to believe that it's not red and that it's blue or whatever the the flip effect would be.
0: Okay, cool. So maybe even just a little bit more mundane. It's just that you're in a room with a red light rather than a regular sort of white or tungsten light and you see something looking red. Then the fact that you also know that there's a red light, then the fact that something looks red no longer means that it is red.
6: That's right. I think... The inference from what is provided to us to the inference about what that object is actually like, we can know, we can be in positions to know that that inference won't hold. It's, a fra- it's fragile in that sense. What a reason is for believing something depends on what other facts are true in the circumstance. There's, there's no way to look just at the one piece of evidence and say, yes, that's a reason to believe something. You have to look at the wider context.
0: So that's an example of how holism could affect the way we think about reasons for believing something. What about reasons we have for doing something or for acting in a certain way? Like we were discussing earlier in the trolley problem, is there a parallel example of how holism affects the way people should think
6: about moral reasoning? Yeah, I think I think there is. I mean, so Dancy starts with the idea of a reason for belief because he thinks no one's gonna resist that or or that's a very uncontroversial idea that our reasons for belief could function that way. But then he wants to move into reasons for action and moral reasons and try to see if the same sort of structure applies. And he thinks that it does. So just like we were talking about the fact of appears red and what does what role does that play in good thinking about a circumstance? We could think about the fact that something is causing pain. And so we can construct a similar example, and he he does so in his his book. He says, if you're causing someone pain, you're doing something wrong ordinarily. If those are the only facts in play, that if we're causing someone pain, then we can usually infer or conclude that that's wrong. Um, And then he says, but wait, but now imagine an analog to the taking of the pill. Imagine we add more facts. So... Imagine that you're causing pain, and the pain is punishment for a statutory offense for breaking the law in your jurisdiction. Then he says, you're not doing something wrong, um, because we've added this new fact. And he says, this can go on. He says, but now imagine that you're causing pain, and it was for a a law in your jurisdiction, but the punishee was unjustly convicted. Now it seems that you're doing something wrong again. And he thinks we can keep flip-flopping the more facts we add we can add bizarre facts or mundane facts and they will change our judgment about whether the the causing of pain is is leads to the conclusion that it's wrong
0: i don't actually love dancy's example here it's actually hard for me to imagine causing pain to someone as a punishment making it okay to cause them pain i don't really believe in punishment though so maybe i'm the odd one out either way i think a clearer example would be causing someone pain by giving them a deep tissue massage When I was at UCLA, I went to their climbing gym a lot. This was right after the historic flooding at UCLA in 2014. So the climbing gym was using bouldering pads instead of the proper thick mats like you find at most gyms. And I'd been trying this bouldering route, the kind of climbing without ropes or a harness, but no more than about 10 feet high. And I'd been trying this route for weeks. Climb after climb, I kept falling at what's called the crux of the climb, the hardest part of the climb. But then I saw this guy climb the route. This is how climbers usually figure out how to do a route by watching someone else. Anyways, I see this guy do it, and I'm pumped because I now know that there's an easier way to get through the crux than what I've been trying. So I asked these two guys to help me out by spotting me. They're new to the gym, but I said, it's easy. You just want to make sure I fall onto this mat, so you just push me onto it to make sure I don't land on my head or back or something. So I've got these two guys who are brand new to the gym spotting me. I go up and try and send the root, try and stick the finish, and I fall. I feel so bad to this day because right after I asked these two new guys to spot me, I told them it was super easy, I fell and I rolled my ankle on the side of the mat and I broke my ankle. So hopefully I didn't ruin climbing for them. So I'm in physical therapy after the fact and my poor calf muscle has been stabilized for like six weeks. And so it has atrophied to this little weakling, like half the size of my other calf. I start building that muscle up, and my therapist is giving me deep tissue massages in my calf. It hurts so bad. Incredibly painful. And I mean that literally And that it's hard to believe how painful it was. But that pain was necessary. It was causing pain, which is usually bad. But it was causing pain for the purpose of healing, and so it wasn't bad. I certainly don't think my physical therapist was in the wrong.
6: That's right. Yeah, that that I kind of agree with you that I don't know if punishment is such an easy example that just makes it right.
0: And Jordan was worried that because you don't give deep tissue massages in order to cause pain, but it's just a byproduct or like collateral damage, it might not work quite the same way. I think it's okay if we leave the nitty-grittiness here out of the story that we're telling. I hope it goes without saying that if you want the full story, you should read Dancy's work, in particular his books Moral Reasons and Ethics Without Principles. But we get the basic idea that causing pain could be right or wrong, depending on how it interacts with other reasons we have for acting in particular ways. So if we have good moral reasons to cause someone pain, then suddenly causing them pain isn't an immoral action. It might be a moral action, or maybe it's even morally required of us. And then if we change it again by adding more facts in, or more beliefs, or more reasons, then it changes again, and
6: then maybe it becomes wrong. That's a nice summary. I mean, the idea is that our judgments about whether some something is wrong or right is always indebted to the wider circumstance. We have to know the facts. And as the facts get more complicated and more enriched our judgment about whether causing pain or doing something else might might change. Okay,
0: so I think I can see the thought here. Holism means that drawing up general rules for morality is going to be really difficult, or maybe in principle impossible. But I had a question as Jordan and I were talking. So why not? Why would any of this make us think that principles are not possible for morality? Why not think, yeah, we can have principles, but they're just more complicated?
6: Yeah, that's it's a it's a natural thought and it's a good thought. Dancy um he he devotes some time to this because he sees that many people who believe in principles will think to themselves, "Yeah, uh there's principles, but that doesn't mean that there's not some exceptions um or some caveats." So maybe some people would think, "Um don't tell a lie um unless you really need to. There's exception cases or escape hatch clauses," you might say. But he rejects this approach because he he thinks any fact can alter the reason-giving property of another fact, like don't cause pain. And so there would need to be as many principles as there are situations. And thus, there aren't really principles at all in any real sense, because if our principle was caveated for every situation, it would be kind of vacuous to say that's a principle. And his idea is that we can't actually at one stroke capture all the exceptions to to a putative principle like don't cause pain we're going to have to just interact with each situation as they come
0: so the idea is that eventually if we admit that holism is true we're going to need a new principle or rule governing every individual circumstances because there are so many different individual circumstances involved that will make problems for any general rule every situation is unique and no general principle can guide us perfectly even in a relatively small number of situations. This is the same as saying that there aren't really moral rules. Dancy thinks that there's always a bunch of relevant facts in each individual situation that will holistically change how the principle applies to the situation and whether the principle is the right principle for this situation or whether we should think about it in a different way. And So because each situation is utterly unique and because there's always all these facts that bear on whether you shouldn't hurt someone in this situation or you should hurt someone in this situation, there aren't really such things as principles or generalizations over situations we find ourselves in.
6: That principle might be a good rule of thumb. It might be a good guide as to the way the reasons will actually work out in all the particular cases. The principle's a useful summary device we might resort to to help us quickly think of an answer in a hard case. But the reality of the situation is that there is no principle.
0: Okay, now that we know what moral particularism is,
7: um, moral particularism,
0: we might wonder, what does any of this have to do with the trolley problem? How are we supposed to use moral particularism as a weapon against the trolley problem?
6: Yeah, I think this is a hard question, I think, to, to easily summarize. But my my kind of reading of it is that even if we were to accept particularism, we we wouldn't really get a straightforward ticket to an answer. So if you're a particularist, you think that we can't assume that because it's wrong to kill in this situation, it's automatically wrong to kill in this other situation. They would definitely want to stress that point. So their explanations will be something relating to the whole, to all the facts. But still, even if that were true, we would be interested to know then what would be those holistic explanations for a trolley case in which we are just trying to decide between one and five people and other similar cases. So we wouldn't be hostage to any general principle in describing those, but still we would need to understand what the particular explanations were for all of those cases. Why is it true that killing is over here wrong and over there right The moral
0: particularist, because they don't believe that there are general moral rules, doesn't get trapped in the trolley problem because the original trolley problem is that there are all these different scenarios that seem to suggest incompatible moral rules. So if there aren't any moral rules, at least not really, then the fact that we want to apply one rule in one scenario and a different rule in a different scenario comes as no surprise to the particularist. So, in a nutshell, one way of rejecting the trolley problem, of escaping from the messy consequences it delivers, is to refuse to accept one of the core assumptions motivating the trolley problem in the first place, the assumption that there are moral rules or that morality is most basically a set of rules. The particularist thinks, nay, morality is about making particular judgments about particular situations, not about coming up with consistent rules for guiding my actions. Let's take one more quick break, and then we'll close out our discussion. I wanted to highlight another philosophy podcast that you might enjoy. It's similar to Elucidations, which I mentioned in the last break. Philosophy Bites is a straight interview podcast. It's well-produced, and the interviewers are adept at asking the right questions to get the uninitiated acquainted with a philosophical problem or argument. I recommend you check it out if you want more philosophy in your life. The bonus is that the episodes tend to be a little bit shorter so you can chew on smaller bite-sized pieces of philosophy. So we started this episode with a series of thought experiments that appeared to give us contradictory rules for deciding what to do. This is a problem. We then went through two different strategies for avoiding this problem. First, we might reject the assumptions underlying creating the rules in the first place. We might reject the idea that one life is less valuable than five lives. Second, we might reject the idea that morality is about rules in the first place. We're trying to make sound moral judgments given all of the complexities of particular situations, not trying to come up with consistent rules to govern all of our actions. You might have noticed some parallels between the moral particularist position and the position I gave voice to in the short monad that I called the vice of consistency. Is the trolley problem a problem? I'm not so sure myself, but I hope you enjoyed exploring the intricacies and thinking about the nature of morality by means of the trolley problem. Thank you to Jordan Wallace-Wolf and Jonathan Dancy for lending us their expertise. Thank you especially Christy Harrington for lending us her narration skills. To Bill Harrington, Owen Roth, Max Feiler, Garvey Peterson, and of course, the inimitable Dustin Rainey. Thank you to freesound.org users OneSticky8, Ben Bojangles, Jace, Uncle Sigmund, ZE Sound Research, Inc., EC Fike, Organic Man PL, The Great Person, Ajax K, Yugi16DM, Wera, Squashy555, Clinkfield, and Papa Burt for producing some of the sound effects in this episode. Next time we'll be asking a very simple question with the help of a very smart guy. Why does stuff cost money? How did we arrive at a system where I make useful stuff for you all day And you reward me with useless scraps of paper and cheap metals like nickel and zinc. Thanks to you for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, there's no better way to show your appreciation than by reviewing us on iTunes, maybe Spotify as well. Subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app too. Having subscribers is really helpful. You know, a lot of people have heard of the French feminist philosopher Simone de Beauvoir but they haven't heard this hidden gem she wrote in a journal just before she died. She was puzzling over a scene she'd witnessed in a bar where someone had pushed someone else and hurt them really badly, and it troubled her pretty deeply. She wrote, People accuse me of being a robot sometimes, but I've got enough emotion there that I I don't think I could push someone. Reductio Adventures and Ideas is a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Lavin.